You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Episode 156. Every computer I have ever owned. Greetings and salutations, listeners, and welcome to another episode of You Don't Know Flack. Today is January 11th, 2015, and I am your host, Rob Flack O'Hara. On today's episode of You Don't Know Flack, we will be talking about every computer I have ever owned. Uh, speaking of computers, I recorded this earlier in the week on my trusty Commodore 64, so I will get that loading back across the network over here so that you can hear it. And while we're transferring the file, that will give us a few minutes to talk on this week's loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Well, hello, everybody. I hope uh, everybody is having a wonderful and exciting 2015 so far. I know that I am really trying to stick to my New Year's resolutions that I made. Uh, and one of those resolutions is to get back on the mic regularly, which I do enjoy. I do like recording and I do like coming up with shows and stuff. A lot of times I uh, convince myself I'll start on a show and then I'll Halfway through, I'll decide that it's not uh, a good topic. It's not relevant. Uh, and, and, you know, the original scope of this show was to talk about old technology and old things. And so, and that has expanded uh, over time. I don't think originally I would have talked about uh, cassette tapes in the original scope of the show. But actually, that turned out to be a pretty good episode. And I got a lot of feedback on that episode. So I'll be talking about that in just a minute. I have spent the last week of my life, and I will be spending next week, working on a project at work, and I don't normally talk about work, and when I do talk about work, I talk about it in generalities, which I will be doing right now, but uh, I've been put on a project. Uh, we, we discovered at work a large pool, by large I mean uh, more than 5,000, less than 10,000, laptops running Windows XP. And as you know, uh, if you are in the uh, technical world, Windows XP has been sunset. They are no longer providing patches, security patches for Windows XP. And uh, so I have been brought in on a team to figure out why these people are still using Windows XP and then they're not using Windows 7 uh, and um, to try and help them out. And so I walked in with all my little technical knowledge and, and uh, thinking, well, let's just go fix this problem. Uh, and then I spent several hours uh, watching a uh, field technician hooking up a Windows XP laptop to a piece of hardware that was built uh, in the late 1980s. Uh, he connected up with a serial cable, and actually we had to use an adapter to boost the uh, voltage of the serial cable because the newer laptop didn't have uh, – actually, uh, the newer laptop that uh, this uh, employee has doesn't even have a serial port. So we're using a USB to serial adapter, an old 9-pin cable, 
uh, in line with a voltage. Uh, I don't I don't know if it's a booster or a regulator, but to get the right voltage that this piece of equipment uses. And then after we got all that hooked up, he launched this DOS application. <laughs> uh, and let me tell you, if you need a flashback, I mean, all of a sudden uh, I went from, you know, configuring a very, you know, top of the line, I, I'm not cutting edge, but definitely modern equipment and software and hardware uh, to going back and trying to configure COM ports and get this thing to uh, start talking and, and work. Um, and obviously being a DOS application, this is not going to run under, uh, windows seven 64 bit. And so we're, we're looking at some different options to make this work. But, uh, I think the most interesting part of this project for me has been, uh, that I work on a federal campus that has, oh, between 30 and 40 buildings. And the building that this is taking place in is literally probably two to three buildings away from where I work. And it I've worked there for almost 20 years. This will be my 20th year. And I have never been in this building. I had no idea what these people do. I've never seen this equipment before. Uh, just completely new experience for me. And so as a technical guy, that's been a lot of fun to go in and see this stuff that I've never seen before, old equipment. And um, I think a lot of people see these guys as maybe, you know, old dinosaurs hanging on to old hardware. And uh, over time, they've explained to us, you know, how many millions and millions of dollars of this equipment is out there in uh, federal airspace. And uh, so it's been really eye-opening to, to learn that, um, you know, when you, when you work in a large organization, you can make changes on one part of a network that affects people in a way that you didn't know you were affecting. Uh, you can say, you know, only uh, machines with that are patched can get online, but... Uh, you may be affecting somebody that's trying to uh, keep hardware from the 80s limping along <laughs> until somebody else upgrades it. So anyway, it, it's um, it's definitely been a technical challenge. And um, so I'm, I'm really enjoying it. It's been some long hours and, and I've been doing some stuff outside of work too that's been taking up a lot of my time. So I've, I've definitely been tired and exhausted, but uh, it, it, it's been a fun project to work on. Uh, speaking... Of that last episode I did, I, I mentioned uh, the last episode of You Don't Know Flack was about cassette tapes, and, and I've had been having some pretty interesting conversations with some listeners from You Don't Know Flack. Uh, I got a comment from Aardvark, um, who said, uh, thanks for another relatable episode, and I like that... Um, I like those episodes where people can relate to the stories in it, where it's not just me telling old stories, but it's uh, when I tell stories that spark listeners to share their own stories. I love those kind of episodes. Uh, Aardvark asked if I ever spent any time rewinding a tape with a pencil or transplanting the spools into a non-broken tape case, and I have done both of those things. I saw someone shared on Facebook not too long ago a uh, one of those infographics that said, if you know what these two things have to do with each other, you may be from the 80s. And it was a pencil and a cassette tape. <laughs> and obviously, if you've ever had uh, a tape build up slack or something like that, and you had to put a, a pencil inside the little holes and, and uh, wind it back around, you, you know what that, you know what those two things have to do with each other. Um, Aardvark says uh, he didn't spend a lot of time collecting music, but he did spend a lot of time recording himself doing funny things on tape. Uh, and it's funny how uh, he also mentioned, and he's one of many listeners that mentioned that he used to record 
the Dr. Demento show. So I thought that uh, not, obviously I didn't think I was the only person who did that, but I'm surprised how many people uh, mentioned that. And um, <laughs> he joked and said the commercials are more interesting than the songs now. And that's possible, you know. Um, I mean, the songs you can always track down again online or, or find, or um, and some of them are forgettable, but the commercials uh, really do capture that time. Uh, I got a comment from Ferg, who you probably know from the 2600 Game by Game podcast. Uh, Ferg says he has precious few radio tapes, but he has a lot of stuff he taped off of MTV videotapes that he made in the 90s. So he recorded things off of uh, the television. Uh, I don't know why I just explained that <laughs> VHS would be um, uh, would be off television. Uh, and, and he mentions that songs on the radio and MTV sound different because uh, – uh, the way that they did the compression and he had no idea why uh, that the song sounded less punchy when you bought them uh, versus, you know, what they sounded like on radio until he started getting into audio software. And that's true. You know, they definitely have a different sound. Um, so that that's a that's a good point for uh, Felix. Another uh, old friend of mine and, and listener to the show said that this episode, the cassette episode definitely hit home. Uh, that he hadn't listened to cassettes well beyond their prime. I'm also probably guilty of that. Um, and he says uh, he's not able to describe what it was that attracted him to them, but part of it was being able to record things. And that's that's definitely true. You know, that's something funny is um, I don't have a DVR in my house. We have digital cable, and I don't pay for a DVR. And so every now and then someone will say, hey, this is going to be on TV. And I'm like, I don't have any way to record anymore. I mean, I can't. I had a PC hooked up for a while, and, and once we went digital – I couldn't record um, through the PC uh, because I just had an analog, you know, coax line going into that, um, and I don't have a DVR. So yeah, it, it's um, uh, funny that I can't record things off of television anymore, you know. And so that that definitely was part of the fun with cassettes of just being able to record something off the radio or your own voice or whatever. Um, Felix also mentioned he can't tell me how many times he's listened to Weird Al on family car trips, and that's true. We do we do that today. <laughs> we will still throw Weird Al on the. Uh, of course, now it's not cassettes. You know, it's usually somebody's uh, phone. But yep, Weird Al still a big part of the O'Hara family uh, road trips. Um, let me see. Oh, Felix also said that uh, he used to record Dr. Demento. Uh, and in the 90s, he found 110-minute tapes. Uh, but the Dr. Demento show was uh, 120 minutes. It was two hours. So he would cut out the commercials. Um, and so uh, anyway, uh, he said – so what he would do on Sunday night, he would take out as many commercials as he could on the A side uh, and get past the first hour and then flip it over and record the uh, second side. Um, and then later he found uh, 120 minute tapes. So, so he could finally record the whole show. That's funny. Uh, you know, most of the tapes I have are, were 60 minute total. They're 30 minute on each side. So, um, and I do remember the, the ones later that were long, like uh, 120 minutes total. So those were great because you could put an album on each side. Uh, finally, I got a comment from uh, Obliterator. 918, who says he grew up in a college town with a college radio station. And so he would record all this stuff off the radio, but his uh, uh, deck, it's funny he mentioned, is mono. Uh, and um, like a lot of kids, he says the diskettes and, and cassette tapes were reused a lot as a kid because they were expensive. And that's true. You know, and a lot of times uh, now I was obviously a hoarder when it came to 
uh, old Commodore software and things like that. But um, for cassettes, you know, you would reuse these things. You record stuff. When you got tired, you record over it. And um, uh, he says it's a shame that he doesn't have any of those recordings left. And, and I agree with you. I, um, I'm lucky to have as many tapes as I have um, every now and then. A lot of times my hoarding uh, <laughs> doesn't pay off, you know, but uh, every now and then it does. So anyway, uh, I thought I would mention that all these comments – came from my forum, uh, which you can find at thegaschamber.robohara.com. Each new uh, podcast that I post gets its own post, and if you want to chime in and and, uh, give feedback that way uh, or chat with other people about the episode, that's a great place to do that. So uh, if you have feedback about this episode or any other episode uh, or the show in general, you can always email your feedback to me at robohara at robohara.com or leave a message to me uh, on the You Don't Know Flag voicemail box, which is 405-486-YDKF, where I listen to each and every one of them on my computer. And speaking of computers, it sounds like this episode is now fully loaded into the computer. So let's get started talking about every computer I've ever owned. So right off the bat, I should say that this episode is not really about every computer I've ever owned. This is about every computer that I ever owned that I used, um, which sounds like a very odd distinction to make. But uh, many of us who have got into retro collecting as far as collecting consoles and and games and, and even old computers know that sometimes we pick up things because it's part of the collection and not something that we actually used. I have, I think I'm down to one or two now, but I had at one time multiple TI, Texas Instruments, TI-994As, which I don't know that I've ever turned on. Uh, I had a friend in grade school that had one, and I remember spending the night with him once or twice and playing on his. But for the most part, I've never used a TI computer, and so uh, things like that are not on this list. Um, What's on this list are computers that I grew up using and that I – uh, used into my adulthood. And, and, um, when we get to the end, I'll talk about the computers that I have today. So, um, when I prepare episodes of you don't know flat in the early days, I would write out the entire script in the early shows. I wrote out just like a book. I would write out every word I was going to say. And then eventually I got to, uh, where I was pretty comfortable writing outlines and major points and, Uh, quotes or things I wanted to say. I can tell you that the show notes for this episode is literally a bulleted list of computers. So (laughs) as I go down this list, uh, whatever memories or stories pop into my head is what we'll be talking about. So this will be a very free-flowing, off-the-cuff episode. Now, the first episode of You Don't Know Flack, which was all about firsts, I talked about the first computer that my family ever owned. And so, and I will make these distinctions, especially in the early part, about computers that my family owned versus computers that I uh, specifically owned. But the first computer we owned as a family was a TRS-80 Model 3, which we got in the spring of 1980. 
Now, if you listen to the first episode and you don't know Flack, you can hear this story in more detail. But we had gone to a New Year's Eve party at the neighbor's house, and the neighbor had a TRS-80 Model 1. And so my dad had gone to Radio Shack to purchase one. And they basically told us that the Model 3 was just coming out in a couple of months. And so we got put on a waiting list. And when the Model 3 came in, uh, we got the first one that arrived in Yukon, Oklahoma. So my dad had a large wooden desk. I would – how can I describe this? It was – kind of fancy as far as it's not like a computer desk that we think of today, like particle wood and things like that. It was a really heavy is how I would explain it. Just a heavy Oak desk. Um, with, um, I remember the top being green, but it was like inset, like there was wood around the edges and then maybe the, the middle part of the desk was green or something. And there was a, a hutch that went on top of it. And sometimes the hutch was on the desk and sometimes the hutch was next to the desk. But, um, uh, it was in our living room. My dad moved this into our living room along uh, this long wall. Uh, here's a trivia fact for you. Our living room growing up, uh, that, the house that I grew up in was a, kind of an interesting design. I guess it's a hexagon shape, you know, and so there's six walls. Like So the fireplace is on a wall and TV is on a wall. So there was a lot of walls to put things up. So So one of the walls had a desk, and that's where the TRS-80 uh, lived. So... When we got that TRS-80 in 1980, I was six, six and a half years old. And kids, you know, like to play games. Obviously, if you give a kid a computer today, they'll figure out how to play games on it. But um, there weren't – we didn't have a lot of games. We had text adventures uh, and we had a few, you know, graphical games. Obviously, they're very, very rudimentary compared to what we have today. Uh, So – and we had a cassette player. So this is kind of my introduction to computers, and uh, we would get books where you would type in programs. And so I did that a lot on the TRS-80. So uh, I type – I have mentioned this before, I think. I type – probably not as fast as I used to. Um, but I used to, on typing tutors, I would take those things, and I could you know, I could always get at least 100 words a minute. Um, but I do not – type uh, in the conventional sense as far as where I put my my fingers over, you know, the home home rows and things like that. I learned very early when, when you're six and you need to type, you learn how to type. And so I learned these patterns, you know, um, the way that my fingers just kind of flow over the keyboard in certain patterns. Um, and so it's funny on typing tutor type programs, I can do really well on the ones that give you real words and real sentences and the ones that just have um, – combinations of letters that aren't really in words, I do very poorly on because I'm, my fingers are not trained to, to go in those types of patterns. So, but, uh, if you're, if you were a kid growing up with a computer, you learned how to type. And so I learned how to type on that TRS-80 and I wrote a lot of basic programs and learned how to, I had my own cassette tape where I could save my programs and, and, um, do all that kind of stuff. So that's definitely, uh, the first computer that we owned and the first one that I, that I used, um, in, uh, 1982, my dad looked at expanding our TRS-80 model three into getting floppy disk drives. And, uh, the, the way I remember the story was that this was now at the time, uh, when we bought it, I believe that it was $799 for one floppy drive and 1199 for two floppy drives. 
Um, now, in 1982, I believe it was going to cost us around $1,000 to add two floppy drives. Uh, and at that point, Apple's uh, Apple computers had been – we had definitely uh, had one in our school at that point. And uh, my dad looked at Apple's and found the Franklin Ace 1000. Now, the Franklin Ace 1000 was a Apple IIe compatible machine. And so it was he could get that computer for the same price it was going to cost to add the floppy drives to the TRS-80 Model 3. So uh, we sold the TRS-80. And he bought a Franklin Ace 1000. And so it basically replaced the TRS-80 on that desk in our living room. And we went from uh, being TRS-80 people to suddenly being Apple people. Um, What can I tell you about the Franklin Ace 1000 and uh, Apple? First of all, I can tell you that, uh, like I said, our school had an Apple. Now, we had one computer, and it was on this little cart that would get wheeled around from, from room to room occasionally. Um, but obviously, the Apple had much better graphics. And we had um, this joystick from a company called Archer, and it was a just a square. You know, it was like a box with two buttons on the right-hand side that were um, like – you could see the springs under the buttons and then a joystick uh, and then the little pot trims uh, that were on Apple joysticks. I guess they were, um, uh, you know, you were always having to fiddle with those to make sure that your your joystick was centered. But, uh, of course, the TRS-80, we never had a joystick. So, uh, And the two buttons, I have always said, was a better choice. Um, you know, the it's the Commodore 64 is obviously, you know, the my favorite computer of all time, but the Atari style joystick, the DB9 joystick limited you to one button and so there were lots of games on the Apple that took advantage of those two buttons. Um, you know, I remember Karateka where one button punched and the other button kicked, you know, or um, Choplifter, where one button uh, fired bullets while the other one rotated your helicopter. So these two buttons um, were very useful, you know, as far as games were concerned. Uh, we did not have Apple brand floppy drives. We had Lobo drives. I remember that. They had a little Howling Wolf <laughs> was the logo. And uh, I remember that my dad occasionally had to adjust the speed of the drives uh, to make things work. I don't know if that's because this was all non-Apple products or or what the reasoning was for that. But um, uh, we I, I mentioned, I think, on uh, a, another episode where – and I know I mentioned this in, in my book, Commodore, that my dad had made friends with this man named Ron who was um, younger than him. Uh, Ron was a college student. And my dad was probably oh, in 1980, so he was in his 40s, and I was a little kid, uh, roughly 10 years old. And Ron ran this this BBS, and so we would go to Ron's house. He lived uh, in a duplex uh, on a local college, uh, and so we would go to his house, and my dad would just take boxes of floppy disks. And, um, and this guy, you know, was a sysop. He ran a BBS, and he was just flowing on software. And he had two computers, which I had never seen at that time. Somebody have two computers at the same time. So he would, uh, you know, play on the BBS. You know, the BBS would be up, and then he would have another one where, where we would play games and stuff. And so it was always exciting to go to this guy's uh, house because – we could just, you know, uh, you would just get 
tons and tons of games, you know. And so that was the big difference for the Apple for me um, and, and the, the Franklin Ace, you know. But um, was in the TRS-80 days, we didn't get a lot of software. You might get one or two, you know, new programs here or there. But you spent a lot more time with each program, whereas uh, once we got to the Apple, uh, you could uh, – you know, I mean, you would just get tons of software. Uh, so we, we had the Franklin Ace 1000 for a while. And in 1984, it seemed there was this, you know, in the early days, it was all about, it was computers, computers, you know, um, you know, you had to get a computer because uh, every family was going to have a computer and you were going to have a computer at work and your kids were going to have computers. And so these, these lines started getting drawn about what kind of computer you were going to get might dictate um, what, you know, you were going to do with that computer or maybe vice versa is a better way to put that. In other words, if you wanted to do this type of work, you might get this kind of computer. And so my impression was always uh, as a kid, if you wanted to, uh, you know, the schools had Apple computers. Our school had Apple computers. So if you wanted to, and Apple had a lot of programs to try to get their computers into elementary schools. So if you wanted to have the same kind, you know, if you were buying a computer for your kids and you wanted to have the same kind of computer at home that you had in the school, you would buy them an Apple. And maybe dad had an IBM at work. So if he needed the same kind of computer at home that he was going to have at work, he would buy an IBM. Uh, And then, you know, if you wanted to have the best game playing computer, you would get a Commodore. So that that was kind of the way I saw those things. So in 1984, um, I won't say that the Apple was not seen as a business computer. It obviously was, you know, when you had things like, um, oh, VisiCalc and things like that, you know, I mean, there were applications uh, for sure on the Apple, but there kind of became this this feeling like the business world was going towards IBM. And so if you wanted to, you know, use computers with your work or whatever, you were going to have to get an IBM. And so in 1984, I remember this giant box coming into our house, multiple boxes, and we opened it up. And it was a PC Junior. And so we got a PC Junior. Now, we still had the Apple, but we got a PC Junior to go next to it. And so this desk in the living room was big enough to have two computers. And so suddenly you had an Apple on one side uh, or the Franklin Ace, you know, on one side and the PC Junior on the other side. And so a lot of the things I had learned how to do on the TRS-80 had carried over. Obviously, I learned, you know, basic and I didn't – I was so uh, basic with my basic that I didn't learn anything that didn't translate to these other machines, you know. So uh, once I got on the Apple and could, you know – got into where I would write basic programs. Everything I had learned from the TRS-80 had carried over. And the same thing with the uh, PC Junior. My thoughts about the PC Junior. First of all, I was too young to really understand the limitations of the hardware upgrades. I do remember my dad having to buy these um, sidecars that attached to the side of the machine to expand it. And I seem to remember you had to buy – everyone came with RAM, but you would buy one – uh, and, uh, there was one that like added a serial port <laughs> so you could, uh, have a mouse and, and, um, and we got ours early enough. If, if you don't know about PC juniors, the original ones came with these wireless, uh, chiclet style keyboards, just little tiny, you know, plastic things, uh, that you would press down on and It was infrared wireless. So you had to set it right in front of the, the PC junior. And, uh, and of course you had to put batteries in the keyboard, the, uh, 
very quickly they offered a different style of keyboard, a more normal keyboard. And so if you, I believe you had to mail in your old one, you could exchange it, get the newer style. So we did that. But I do remember having the original style. Um, the PC Junior had cartridge ports on the front. And so we had different cartridges. I'm pretty sure basic was a cartridge and it came with a few different games. There was like a space shooter and maybe a, a typing program or something, but, but we had a few, uh, uh, cartridges, you know, that came, uh, with it. Um, I don't believe our PC junior had, in fact, I'm sure it did not have a hard drive. Um, it just had a, um, floppy drive. And so I remember a lot of the, the game that I remember the most playing on PC junior was King's quest, uh, and King's quest, had all of a sudden, you know, we had like, I guess, 16 colors on the PC Junior versus, um, you know, what we were used to on the Apple, which for a long time, we just had an amber monitor on our Apple. And, and then we upgraded to a color monitor. Um, and, and so we had, you know, some some color, but obviously the color palettes and the graphics were different on the Apple II versus the PC Junior. So the, the PC Junior actually, at the time, seemed to have pretty good graphics, you know, compared to what we were used to. Now, I know that the PC Junior was definitely limited in the ways that it could be upgraded and the, and the ports that were included on the back. And so the next year, my dad purchased an IBM XT. Now, he did not purchase an IBM XT. He purchased an IBM XT clone uh, from a uh, local business. Now, um, originally... Uh, that IBM that we had, had dual floppy drives. Um, I seem to remember it had a, a monochrome monitor, uh, that came with it. And my dad had, had, uh, known a lot of people through BBSs. My dad ran a BBS for a long time. He ran one on the PC and he ran one. Um, I don't think we ever ran one on the Apple, but he had modems as soon as, as, uh, you could get modems, you know? So we had a modem in our, our Apple or in the Franklin Ace and we had a modem in the PC junior. So, uh, so he had known these, you know, other local computer people and, uh, someone had posted, it was late at night, a five meg external hard drive for $200. And it was such a good deal that my dad said, we're going to go get this right now. And it was a Norman, which back then was probably an hour drive for us. And this is 11 o'clock at night. My dad contacted the guy and said, I'll come get it right now. And so uh, I hopped in the car with him and rode. We drove to Norman, Oklahoma and bought this five meg hard drive for $200 and came back. And my dad was thrilled. Five meg was actually quite a bit of space, you know, back then when you're you're thinking about, you know, uh, the size of files, um, 180K, I guess, floppies, you know, or 360K floppies. So, um, you know, you can store quite a bit on a 5 meg hard drive, especially, you know, files and things like that. Um, at this point, my dad upgraded the desk in our living room <laughs> because we were out of space uh, because we still had the PC Junior. And we still had the Franklin Ace 1000. And now we have an IBM XT. And so he built this desk that um, I, as a kid, I thought that he had made the top of it out of a door, like an outside door to your house. Um, but I think it might have been bigger than that. I think he might have made this out of a 4 by 8 
sheet of wood. This was a giant desk. And so, and it had three computers on it and it was in our living room. Um, (laughs) so, uh, and, and you could, you know, there were chairs there, multiple chairs. So, you know, if one person was on the Apple, uh, and somebody else could be on the, the IBM or something like that. And, uh, so this is a time, remember, I mean, this is still 1985, uh, where a lot of people don't have home computers and they come to our house and we have three uh, set up. So it was pretty, pretty exciting time. Now, when I, my buddy Andy, uh, his parents or his dad also had a computer. They had a Commodore 64. And so I would go over to Andy's house and I was used to playing games on this Apple II that we had on our Amber monitor and, um, you know, on an IBM XT. And then I saw the Commodore 64, and we would play Below the Root, and we would play uh, Impossible Mission and games and Ghostbusters, games that had speech synthesis and great graphics and Atari joysticks. And, I mean, that was a kid's dream. It was, you know... It was like a Nintendo, but it was better than Nintendo. Um, I mean, you could argue graphics and things like that may not, but uh, you could, you know, get these games for free. You could copy games and and play games and and do all this. And man, I wanted a Commodore. I wanted a Commodore so bad, um, just because all these games that were out there. And so, um, I believe it was my uncle. Well, I know it was my uncle Kenny who had a Commodore and something went out on it. I want to say it was a sound, maybe it was the, the Vic chip, I think, or the, maybe the, the Sid chip, but whatever it was, uh, I think he either gave it to my family or they bought it a very, very cheap, uh, and said if, if we would pay to get it repaired, um, then we could have it. And that's the way I remember the story. I might be, I might not have all the details on that, but uh, but that's what happened. So we got this Commodore 64 and the Commodore 64 went in my room. So for the very first time, I had my own computer in my bedroom. So we still had the three computers in the front room and now we have the Commodore 64. Now in the uh, the fall, well, the, let's say it's the end of the school year. So this is the summer of 86, my parents opened a computer store. Now, obviously my dad had a lot of interest in home computers and he'd owned all these computers and we were finding other people who were interested in home computers, but, um, there was no good place, you know, to buy locally, to buy software and buy blank discs and, and order things or whatever. And so my parents opened a place called Yukon software in Yukon, Oklahoma, and, uh, they ran it for a year and, um, uh, so my dad purchased a, an SX 64, which is the portable, uh, we call it now a luggable Commodore 64. It was all in one. It has a five inch monitor and I think it weighs 20 pounds or so. Um, and a couple of other computers. And so we, he basically split up the collection. So the, the computer store had a little area where you could put, uh, computers. And I think they were even talking about like offering computer like classes and things like that. But that never happened, I don't think. But, um, you know, they would have computers up there and then running software and demos and stuff like that. You know, it's good advertising. So uh, the Franklin Ace 1000 went up to uh, the store. The PC Junior went up to the store and uh, the SX64 went up to the store. 
Um, and that left the IBM XT at home. And, of course, my, my Commodore 64 uh, stayed at home. And later on, I know at the store for a while, we had a Laser 128, which was a knockoff uh, Apple IIc compatible machine. So we had that up at the store for a while. Uh, Yukon Software was open for a year. I think I've talked about Yukon Software before. Um, you know, when they opened the store, there was nobody in Yukon selling software, selling uh, computer-related things. And within a year, uh, Walmart was. Um, and uh, uh, Target was now carrying Commodore equipment. You could go to Target and buy a Commodore disk drive. You could buy software, you know. And I remember the, the story I always tell people is my dad showed me and it was the game. I believe it was Altered Reality was the game he showed me. And uh, he had a uh, reseller catalog full of software. And I think the price was like 35 or $36 that he would have to pay. And the MSRP that he was supposed to resell it for was 40 And Walmart had it for 33 So Walmart literally had things cheaper than what he could buy them for. I mean, and and so he was like, you know, I mean, this is not a good business model to go to Walmart and buy stuff and drive across town and try and mark it up five bucks, you know. So unfortunately, the the big uh, retailers like that put uh, my parents out of business. And so they they closed the store. And then most of those computers at that point got sold. I know the Laser 128. The Laser 128, I don't think it was ever in our house. Um, but that got sold. Uh, the Franklin Ace was sold. The SX, SX64 got sold. The PC Junior got sold. Um, so we basically were down to um, you know the XT and uh, and my my Commodore. Which, by the way, I'm not going to talk a whole lot about my Commodore, but just know that I got a Commodore in my bedroom in 1985, and it's still on my desk here right now. I mean, I can see it from where I'm sitting. So uh, that that computer has never left my life. It's it's always been. Uh, I've talked about it on the show. I wrote a book about it. Uh, Commodore sixty four has always uh, always been there in my life, some way or another. Now, as the store was closing in nineteen eighty seven, um, my dad ended up also selling the XT, and he bought a two eighty six. Um, I do know that it came from a local computer store that, you know, would, would custom build machines. And, uh, I remember that it had a turbo button on the front. I don't know if you remember this, uh, if you're old enough to remember, but a lot of old, uh, PCs had turbo buttons (laughs) that I guess would do minor overclocking basically. And so it was a 10 megahertz. It was a 286 running at 10 megahertz, but if you press the button, the 10 would change to 12. Uh, and things would run slightly faster. And so if you wanted things to load faster or run faster, you would press the turbo button and it would go to 12. And then if you wanted to play a difficult game and things were running too fast, you would unpress the button and it would go back to 10 megahertz, uh, which sometimes made playing games easier. So we had that computer for that 286 for a while. Uh, In fact, when I graduated high school, uh, which would have been in the spring of 1991. Those are the two computers that we had in our house. We had this 286 and my Commodore 64. After graduating high school, I went off to community college, and um, I had to pay, for the most part, for my own school 
And when I did that, I did that by working at multiple pizza places and also getting a job at the school as the newspaper editor and the yearbook editor. Those were paying positions. So between editing both of those uh, and delivering pizza and making pizza and doing all that, uh, I didn't have a lot of time outside of school and work for computers. And, and uh, you know, I was uh, – taking journalism classes and we had a journalism lab that was filled with uh, Mac classics, Mac pluses, whatever. And uh, so that's where I, you know, really started doing uh, GUI type computers and word processing and, and uh, we would do our layout and, and all these things in, in these Macs, you know, so really that that's kind of where I got my, my computing uh, Phil, for those couple of years, I wasn't doing a lot on the Commodore at that point. Uh, I wasn't doing a lot uh, on the PC at home at that point. And mostly we, we played around with these Macs. But I, I just, you know, had kind of taken a break from computers. So in the fall of 93, I had been going to this local community college for two years. And in the fall of 93, uh, my now wife of... Uh, this year will be uh, of 20 years, called and said she was looking for a roommate. She was going to a college that was an hour away. Uh, she was actually looking for two roommates. And so um, I said, you know what, I've, I've kind of, I'm done with community college, so I will go off to this other school. I'll figure out a way to pay for it. And, and that'll be that. So, um, so I, I took all my stuff, took my Commodore, took all my, my clothes and, and my guitar and CDs and everything that was important to me. And I moved an hour away and moved in, uh, with, uh, Susan. And, uh, I knew that I was going to need a computer, uh, to do schoolwork at home, you know, uh, to be able to type reports and, and do certain things like that. And so, uh, I had this buddy named Jake, and Jake is not his real name, and it's not he does not work at uh, State Farm. <laughs> and um, Jake worked at a local computer store, and Jake was like, "Hey, I can you know help you get a computer, and most of it will be you know if you'll buy this much of it, then I can probably get this much of it for you from free, from like spare parts or things that were in the trash or." things from whatever. And I didn't ask questions. So, uh, so Susan's mother had sent her uh, $600 that she was supposed to pay uh, her tuition or buy books with. And so we cashed the check and, uh, I called up Jake and was like, Hey, I got $600. What can I buy? And so I ended up buying a 386, uh, DX, it was a DX two forty, I want to say. Uh, and so I went to his store, I bought the motherboard. Uh, I think I bought the Ram. I bought, uh, a 110 meg hard drive and, uh, the monitor. And so that's what I got for 600. And then he got an old, uh, a case that we put the computer in. And I think there may have been some other odds and ends that he got out of the trash or whatever. But, um, uh, but, uh, Jake and I sat at his house and built this computer. This is the first computer, the PC that I ever actually assembled. He showed me how to insert Ram. He showed me how to install a hard drive, how to get the cables the right way and how to mount one and, and um, how to do all these things. And so, 
Uh, I mean, I owe this guy a lot. This guy is who the person that got me into, I mean, he showed me the art of, of, you know, mounting a motherboard and putting those little spacers in and all that stuff. Like this is the guy that taught me how to do that, you know? Um, and so finally I had a, a PC and then I think we, um, I think my wife took out a loan to pay for her books, (laughs) which is terrible, (laughs) but, um, so now I had a, an IBM, I had my own IBM PC. It was a 386, um, and it was a DX, which was considered to be the, the really fast. fast uh, it had a math co-processor. You would always tell people, you're like, it's a 386 with a math co-processor, um, which uh, apparently helped it calculate math uh, and, and run things more quickly. So it, it did uh, on games as far as that was concerned. It was a pretty fast machine. I always liked that machine. And... Uh, I lived uh, an hour away from Oklahoma City, and so we could call Oklahoma City, but uh, for Oklahoma City to call me was long distance. It was a very odd kind of thing. So, uh, so But I could call BBSs again, and so I hadn't called BBSs in a while. And this is the first time I started calling BBSs um, you know, with an IBM. And what was funny is, is as a kid – uh, Apple BBSs seem to be kind of technical, you know, like there was always hackers and, and people talking about how to build things and do this and that. And, um, IBM boards were always, well, Commodore boards were all about games and software and, you know, trading games and, and stuff like that. Uh, and of course this is huge, huge generalizations, but, uh, the, uh, IBM boards always seemed very stuffy. It was always like old guys that wanted to be serious and talk about computers and stuff. And they were just boring to me. So, uh, I wasn't too excited about getting a, a PC as far as modeming and stuff. But when I started calling boards, I found, uh, lots of people, my own age, that had set up BBSs. And so, uh, it, it was pretty, uh, it was, it was a whole new world. It wasn't the world that I had been exposed to as a kid calling BBSs. This was like a new generation of, uh, sysops and boards and stuff. And so it was a lot more, uh, exciting at that point. Now, uh, within a year in 1994, I had moved back to Oklahoma city and, uh, I got a job at Best Buy and I, I, um, had a couple different things. I started off in the computer section and then I worked in the software section. And then eventually I got a job up in the tech booth where I would uh, repair uh, people's computers, you know. And um, this lady came in one day with this old computer, an old HP desktop computer. And in her hand, she had a warranty. And basically what it was was a three-year warranty. And she said that, uh, you know, the warranty basically said we had to repair this thing or replace it. And the manager came over, and I'm looking at this thing. And this was a 386-16. So it was definitely old by 1994 standards. And the um, problem with the machine, there was was the uh, CMOS battery had gone out. And actually, the uh, I believe the connector that the battery plugged into was actually, you know what it was is that it was proprietary. It wasn't like a CMOS, like a watch battery that we think of today. It was, uh, had a little tiny plug or something, uh, with wires coming off and it went to a battery back and that's, um, that's what had gone out. And, uh, occasionally, you know, at Best Buy, if we were trying to repair a customer's computer, we could go, uh, you know, just like if we needed an IDE cable, we could go get one 
and uh, they would just write up the thing that says, you know, we had to get this part. But there was I didn't have those kind of parts there. And so I told the manager, I was like, I can't fix this. I don't have this stuff, you know. Like maybe if I could go to Radio Shack and, and buy a, a battery holder or something, you know. And, and they were like, no, you can't do that. You know, you have to just use stuff we have. And I was like, we can't fix this. And so this lady uh, basically was able to go get a brand new um, computer right off the shelf and we had to replace it. And so this 386 16, you know, we just took ownership of, and, and I asked the manager, what do you want me to do with it? He was like, I want it in the trash. I don't ever want to see it again. You know, this just cost us hundreds of dollars. And I was like, okay. And so I walked out the back door, walked around and stuck it in the back of my car. And that, uh, HP ultimately became the original gas chamber BBS. Uh, I, I think I had probably gone back to Jake and we had, um, you know, he, he had a battery compartment that we soldered some wires to and hooked it up and, and that became the CMOS battery and it, and it worked fine. Uh, that tower, it was a small mini size tower, uh, not a tower, I'm sorry, like a desktop computer and it had enough space for one hard drive. So there was spots for one hard drive and two floppy drives. And so I put a hard drive in there and then when I needed more space for the BBS, I took the uh, five and a quarter inch floppy drive, which was on its way out at that point, and put a hard drive there just so it would have a, a spot to physically mount it to. And um, eventually I took the other floppy drive out and put a hard drive there, and I had a fourth floppy drive that was duct taped to the power supply. Uh, and then the power supply eventually died, and it was it was HP, and it was not a normal power supply like we have today. It was long and skinny. And so I yanked that out, and I got another uh, – a normal power supply and just wired it in and it was sitting on my desk next to the computer. Um, so I had, and you know, where the other one was, I put the other hard drive. So I had four hard drive things, uh, four hard drives in this, uh, this terrible weird case. Um, and I added a, a SCSI card to it because a coworker was selling a CD-ROM changer, which is the only one I've ever personally seen. It was an external CD-ROM changer that held six CDs. So, uh, I had access to a CD-ROM burner at work, and so I, when I would get enough software downloaded, I would take it to work and burn it onto a CD and come home and put it in, in uh, the CD-ROM changer and then free all that stuff up off the hard drive. So, uh, you know, when I booted this thing up, it had 10 letters <laughs> assigned to local drives, four to hard drives and six to the CD-ROM changer. So I definitely had space on my BBS. That's one thing uh, I could say about that. Um, I remember keeping the, the, uh, the 386 uh, DX240 for a long time, but eventually uh, I built uh, a DX2, a 486 uh, DX266, which was my main computer for a while. And then eventually I built a DX4100, and um, my biggest memory of that is that it was in a big-ass tower. I mean, a tower that was probably, I don't know, three feet tall. I mean, it was a giant full-size tower. Um, and that was the machine I had when Windows 95 came out. I had a DX4100. Um, I remember I was working at Best Buy uh, before that. In the spring of 95. And uh, I remember that the whole computer demo area was 486s. And then we got a Pentium 60. And I was like, what's well, a Pentium? You know, it's faster than a 486. 
and there was a Pentium 60, and then they moved, they got rid of something. I think we had 486, like a 33, and that dropped off the end of the, the display row. Um, and then we got a Pentium 75, and then they bumped something else off, like the, a 48650 or something, you know. And I remember thinking at the time, like, someday this will all be Pentium computers. They won't even have 486s. And that's what happened. Actually, we had a, 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 a Pentium 60 and then a 75, and then we had a 90. And I think when I left there, we had just got a Pentium 100 maybe, but the 486s just got pushed off. You know, they just um, just got replaced. But I had a 486 DX4 100, which I used for uh, a long time, uh, probably until, gosh, 98. I'm trying to place this in the timeline. I came back. uh, I had moved to Spokane, Washington, and was there for a year and a half. And I came back in 98. And uh, I I was complaining to a friend of mine, uh, who we'll call Chris, uh, that, um, I was still using a 46 and Chris said, um, they have Pentium 133s at work that they're throwing away and I could have one. And I was like, really? And he said, sure, let's go up to my work and get one. And I said, okay. And so, uh, Chris picked me up at 10 PM and we went and we, it was in the middle of the night and all the lights were out and we went to a storage room and all this. And all of a sudden it dawned on me that I don't think Chris may have, they may not have been throwing these away. Like maybe Chris and I were robbing this place. <laughs> um, but it was a, it was a computer that there was something wrong with. And what was wrong with this thing was um, that the BIOS would not store your settings. So every time I turned this thing on, it would say, you don't have a hard drive. And I had to go do the auto detect hard drive and it would say, oh, there you are. Uh, so it was kind of like a CMOS battery kind of thing, but but this one was not repairable. So. Uh, at least not, you know, based on our, uh, our skill set. So we would take this, uh, so I took this computer and it was just another big tower. It was all beat up or whatever, but I finally had a Pentium, you know, I had a Pentium, uh, 133 and around this time at work, you know, I started, um, you know, as tech support for the government, um, in, uh, 95, and we supported Novell Networks, Novell 3.11, maybe 3.1, uh, and eventually upgraded. We had to upgrade due to Y2K, <laughs> which tells you how long ago this was. Um, but eventually we switched off of Novell and we went to Windows NT. And so uh, I was like, you know, it'd be awesome is if I had a Windows NT server at home and I could network my computers together. And so I think I turned maybe that DX4100 maybe into um, an NT4 server and all the other machines uh, kind of became clients uh, that I would log into NT4. It's like I set up my own domain at the house. And by the way, this, I did not have any KVMs. A KVM is, stands for keyboard video mouse and it's a device uh, that you may or may not be familiar with. You're probably familiar with it where uh, you hook it up to a computer or multiple computers to it, and you can share one keyboard, one mouse, and one monitor uh, to multiple computers. So like in my normal computer room here at the house, I have a couple of computers hooked up, but I only have one set of monitors and uh, one mouse and one keyboard hooked to all these things. Well, that uh, um, didn't didn't exist or wasn't – not that it didn't exist. It wasn't affordable uh, back then. I mean, the KVMs were hundreds of dollars. And so um, instead, 
for every computer I had hooked up, everyone had its own monitor, everyone had its own keyboard, everyone had its own mouse. And so I had gone to a surplus thing somewhere and I got this giant corner metal army desk. I mean, this is a desk you would see on MASH. I mean, this is from the 50s and it's OD green and solid metal. And uh, it was in the corner of my computer room and it had monitors everywhere, computers everywhere, you know. It was ridiculous. And also this room stayed at, you know, 80 degrees because you have all these old computers. And for some reason I never um, – <laughs> if you worked on a lot of computers back then, you, you may relate to this. But, um, you know, all these computers were in, mostly in towers at this point. And you would put the case on and screw the case in. Um, and then you would open up the case to install more RAM or switch a hard drive or do something. And then you would put it all in. And so eventually you quit putting the screws in these cases. And, um, uh, so then when you wanted to do something, you just pop the case off, do something, put it back on. Um, and then I don't even know what happened to the cases, like the, <laughs> the cases or some, in some case, like I remember I had a case and I had a printer balanced on top of it. So, but there's no computer in the case, you know, the, the computer was somewhere else. So you just ended up with these big open boxes of stuff and blowing hot air around. And it was bad for, ergonomically speaking, you know, and, and, um, this room was 80 degrees because none of these computers had cases. They're just blowing hot air around all the time. Um, now around that time I had gone to a Novell class for work and they did this Novell networking and the domain, if you want to call it that really was called something like solar system. And we all built Novell servers and everybody's server had the name of a planet. So if you wanted files, you went to Saturn, and if you needed this, you went to Jupiter, and you wanted this, it was on Pluto. And so I was like, that's a great system. I love that because you can kind of associate. Like you can – in your head, you think, oh, this is on Saturn, you know, and so you would go there and and um, get whatever you needed. And so – I was setting up my home NT network at the time, and I was like, I need a naming convention like that. And so, uh, obviously, if you've listened to this show before, you know that I'm a huge Star Wars fan, and so that was the system I came up with. So, uh, And actually, I came up with kind of a hierarchy of things. I decided um, that all of my computers, like if you were a tower computer, it would be a person. So I had the Emperor, and I had Vader, and I had Obi-Wan. Um, and then I named my laptop ships because ships come and go, they travel, you know? And so, uh, if you were a laptop, I know I had land speeder and snow speeder and, uh, you know, different, different types of ships. Um, and then I named the servers planets because a server is a place that you go to, you know? So, um, back then I had Tatooine and I had Hoth. I think my domain controller for a long time was Hoth. Uh, and then I named the domain empire and that was it. And so I, you know, and actually what I would do is, uh, on the desktops of my computers, I would put a picture of whatever it was named. So when I looked at it and I was like, Oh, that's Vader. I mean, cause there's a picture of Darth Vader, you know? And, uh, um, <laughs> years later I built a, uh, a security, uh, a scanning machine that I could go do pen tests with or whatever. And I named it Boba Fett <laughs> just out of old habits. And I had a picture of, of a great picture of Boba Fett standing there, you know, um, just looking like a badass. And, and, um, uh, yeah. So, I mean, and that's actually a naming standard that I use today that uh, all my machines still have star Wars related names. Um, so I still had this, this desk, uh, this metal desk or whatever. And I came up, I, I've done this a few times. 
I was just in the middle of the night. I'm laying there in bed, and I sat up, and Susan was like, what's going on? I'm like, I'm going to build Mammoth Desk 2000. And she was like, what the hell's a Mammoth Desk 2000? And I had had this dream where I had a giant desk, um, and I had a name. Its name was Mammoth Desk 2000. I was like, I'm going to build this thing and put all my – and it was probably, you know – a lot like the desk that my dad had built, uh, you know, when, when I was a kid, I held all those, those, um, discs. So I went to Home Depot and Lowe's and I looked around or whatever, and I found these Formica, um, countertops. So they were curved on the front and they had it like a little backsplash kind of area. And, uh, I think there was one that was like 12 foot long. And this room that I had was like 11 foot wide. And so I took this thing and I used a a circular saw and I just cut it to where it would fit exactly in this room, like the whole length of the wall. And then I screwed a bunch of two by fours into the, you know, the studs uh, on the wall and uh, made sure they were all level. And then I carried this giant countertop thing in there and set it on top of the two by fours and screwed all that together and, and uh, used a, uh, a whole drill to drill a couple of holes where I could run cables, you know, between uh, the top and the bottom. And then I built this giant hutch that went on, you know, on top that was 11 foot wide and it held all my computers and stereo equipment and everything. And that was mammoth desk 2000. It was super awesome. And, uh, <laughs> I missed that thing. And I had all these computers set up. I had monitors all the way across. It looked like a, a computer lab almost, you know, it was very cool. I really miss uh mammoth desk 2000. And that must've been around the year 2000. I think that's why I came up with that name. Now at this time, it kind of gets hard to track computers. Like what computer did you own? Because I was constantly upgrading things. I'd found this local computer company that sold motherboards and parts or whatever. Uh, they always had deals on Cyrix motherboards. Remember those and, and, uh, AMD motherboards. And so, uh, when this computer, you know, I had four or five computers when this one was too slow for this, I'd go down there and I'd buy a motherboard, come home and upgrade it, you know? So, um, it's kind of like that old argument when you have a, a ship, you know, and you, a ship that has a hundred parts on it and you replace one part a year. At what point is that not the same ship anymore? You know, I mean, once you've replaced half of it or three quarters or all of it, is it still the same ship, you know? And, uh, it was the same kind of thing. Like I had these cases that I had been dragging around for years, uh, the same case that I had got from, uh, uh, Jake when I was younger, you know, I still had, but it had none of the original parts in it. It was just, um, the case. And actually I had, um, on the cases, I had started putting stickers, like bumper stickers and, and uh, stickers of bands and things like that. So they, you know, they were just completely covered in different things. I had gone to, uh, I'd gone to uh, like a hardware store and bought the reflective letters. It got ones that said flack, and I would put all these letters on things and make them say flack. It was really kind of silly. Uh, so. I remember at one point, like I was having all these problems with these computers like this didn't run on that. And this one was always flaking out and this one always reset. And so I, I finally was like, you know what I'm going to do is I'm just going to buy a computer. Like this is going to be the first computer that I haven't built uh, the first PC. You know, I'm just going to go online and buy a computer. And so I went online and I bought an e-machine and this thing, I remember, you know how computers, when you get them, they're really fast, you know, and you boot it up and you're like, man, this thing is fast. And then you install tons of crap on it, you know, over the years and you're like, this computer's slow. 
Um, that computer seemed slow when I got it. I was like, what the heck is this thing, man? I was never happy with that, you know. And and um, I bought a couple other computers. But what I started doing really was uh, at work, everything we had was Dell. We used Dell desktops. We had Dell towers, Dell servers. And I became really familiar with um, Dell hardware. So uh, I would just go like on Craigslist and I would look for Dell machines, you know, and – uh, that's what I, I started buying. So I had several towers here at the house and they were all Dells, you know, and it was, um, uh, it was just cause I was, I knew how they ran. I knew how they felt, you know, if that makes sense. I knew, um, how to work on them. Uh, and so, so I, and I just liked the way I liked the way that their cases, you know, were designed and popped off and, and, uh, so yeah, so I, that's what I ended up doing is I, I ended up buying some Dells and I, I uh, like off of Craigslist and stuff like that. So that's what I ended up uh, having for, for quite a while. Uh, at work, and this would have probably been around 2002, 2003, I got a laptop and, uh, we were doing a lot of remote support at that time and traveling and things. And so they got us laptops and this was way before the days of, um, you know, global policies of restricting like what software you could install or, or, uh, any type of monitoring and stuff. And so that work laptop really became my primary machine for a long time. And I liked the way that felt. I mean, I liked that you could, um, install Photoshop or this or that, and you didn't have to have it on multiple machines. You just took the machine with you. If you were going to work, I had my tools. Like I had, uh, you know, Photoshop at work and people would say like, Oh, I need this done for a website or whatever. I'm like, boom, there's Photoshop. Uh, and then I would come home and I still had it, you know? And so I, I like that feeling. Uh, and that, that laptop was not super fast when I owned it and it got outdated pretty quickly, but I did like that. And so that kind of turned me on to the idea of replacing my main machine with a laptop. Um, I haven't fully done that yet, but I, I do have a couple laptops, uh, I'm going to talk about that. Actually, I think now's a good time to talk about that. Um, so what do I have today now that we're, we're wrapping up every computer I've ever owned? Well, first of all, upstairs in my computer room, I have two computers. I have a server, uh, which is a quad core box with, uh, I think 32 gigs of Ram now. Uh, and that's, um, you know, the server for the house. Um, it's a, a, a windows box and it actually hosts, uh, some other virtual machines for, for web hosting and stuff like that. Uh, and then I have a workstation still, um, and it, they actually, the towers are stacked on top of each other and those are both hooked to the KVM. Uh, and then I have a, uh, a docking station for my work laptop. So when I work from home, I plug into that, switch the monitors over to that and it's uh, very convenient. So, uh, I have all those machines upstairs. I also have a couple of laptops and one of which I'm using right now. I have a laptop which I have dedicated to podcasting. So, um, you know, I got tired of setting up recording equipment, tearing it down, moving things around. And uh, so, you know, I built the pod cart, assembled the pod cart, which is a metal rolling cart. And I have this laptop on it and another monitor and um, and the mic and everything's here. So when I, when I want to record, I wheel it out of the closet. When I'm done recording, I wheel it back in. It's very convenient. Um, and I don't have to jack with, you know, uh, installing things and messing with drivers or whatever. It's just kind of a dedicated, this was the last laptop, uh, like the used to be my main laptop. Now it's been relegated to the podcasting. Uh, and then, uh, Susan and I, 
uh, bought laptops. Uh, they're Asus laptops and I bought them a couple of years ago and they're, uh, whatever, I think they're i5 quad cores or whatever. So they're pretty zippy laptops. And so, uh, I have, I leave that downstairs. So, uh, unfortunately, computing sometimes is a, a lonely hobby. You know, a lot of times we we go shut ourselves in a room and we go work on computers and this and that, and, and that's harder to do to get that time with uh, uh, when you have a wife and a family and things going on, especially um, in a two-story house. I have a, um, you know, my little area that's upstairs, and it's way far away from the family. You know, I come up here and shut the door, and you can't hear what's going on or anything. So uh, it's um, – uh, nice to have a laptop that I can just leave downstairs all the time. So if I want to f- hop on Facebook or Twitter or, or, uh, jot out notes for a blog post or something, I can do that downstairs without having to, to, um, come upstairs and shut myself off from everybody. So, <clears throat> um, so, so that's pretty convenient. Uh, I just, before I hit record, I walked out to the garage to see what I could see that's out there. And there are eight computers out there. Um, the oldest one is an old 486 DX4 100. Uh, still have that. And uh, then there's a Pentium, a 667 megahertz Pentium. There's my old uh, workstation that was uh, 1 gigahertz. And the, the fastest one I saw out there is a Dell that's uh, 2.1 gigahertz. Now, the question that you may be wondering and the question that I don't really have a great answer to and that my wife asks occasionally is, why do you have eight old computers stacked up in the garage? Um I have the 486 because uh, I think DOSBox is a pretty good solution for playing um, old computer games, but occasionally it's not. Uh, and so I have considered many times bringing that thing up, hooking it up in the computer room for playing old games. Now, I don't really have room to do that, first of all. Second of all, I don't think those old um, 486 machines, especially running DOS, work great with LCD monitors. Usually it's like not centered or or things, you know, so I'd really want to do it with a CRT. And I'm just, I don't know. So it's one of those things like I, I feel like I, I might do that someday, but I'm, I haven't done it yet. So that's why that's there. I, I should keep a couple of those machines around for if I ever decide to build another MAME cabinet or have a MAME type uh uh, thing and and you know most of them would make decent Linux machines if I wanted to do something like that. I don't need eight of them, so uh, mostly some of those are down there because I haven't tossed them. To be honest with you, um, I always I'm always afraid to throw away old computers because I think, well, what if I need this part? What if I need uh, an old 16 bit sound card? Or what if I need uh, this old RAM? But in reality, that stuff has never come up. I've never been like, oh, I need some old, you know, 32 pin Sims for this project. And if I did, I'd go on eBay and I'd buy them for, you know, five cents or whatever. Um, so I don't know why all those are still out there. I'll, I'll probably, that should be uh, part of the New Year's resolution is to pare down that, uh, that collection, you know. Um, like I said, Keeping one or two around for a main thing or for a backup for something, I, I'm okay with that, you know. But, you know, having that many spares for something that I don't know why I have spares, I think it's probably a safe bet to say that, that uh, their residency may be short-lived. Now, finally, when I'm talking about computers uh, that I still own, upstairs in my computer room is the retro computer desk. And... uh 
Up until recently, that held three computers. It held uh, my Commodore 64, the same one that I've owned since 1985. It's still there, still running. Uh, next to it is uh, an Apple IIe. And both of those have, uh, what would I call this, like alternate loading systems. Like the Commodore I use, the 1541 Ultimate, so that I can load games directly from SD cards. And on the uh, Apple II, I have a CFFA 3000 card so that I can load games from USB stick. And those things are so convenient. I love both of those uh, both those things. Up until recently, I also had an Amiga 1200 hooked up there. Now, the Amiga 1200 is not a machine that I owned as a kid. Um, my buddy, Justin, owned one, and I, I really love of the Amiga, but uh, I don't have the I have the nostalgia as far as I remember other people people owning them and wanting one, but not that I grew up using one. So, um, but I recently took it down and set it aside to make room for a couple of other things. Uh, I guess you would call them computers, but I now have a Raspberry Pi hooked up up there, which is um, uh, a, a small. We talked about that on the Raspberry Pi episode, a small computer, and I also have a Mist which is a uh, FPGA programmable computer. So kind of the idea of what computers are has changed, definitely. I mean, you think about, uh, you know, saying I own a computer and it would be this big giant thing you put on your desk. Now it's a little tiny thing the size of a credit card. Um, And then down in the garage, I have tons of computers that um, I have a Commodore Plus 4. I have a Commodore 16, uh, uh, an Apple IIc, another Apple IIe, an Amiga 500. Uh, the 1200 that I had, uh, that TI-99, I have all those computers. Those are not computers. I mean, I, I guess you would say that I own them, but they're definitely not computers that I use or uh, use regularly or some have ever used. I just happen to own them. So uh, not not ones that I would put on the list. Um, but basically, starting with that TRS-80 Model 3 in 1980 and going to the machines that I listed today, those are every computer I've ever owned. That wraps up another episode of You Don't Know Flack. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you'd like to send me feedback about this episode or any other episode of You Don't Know Flack, you can email me at robohara at robohara.com. Contact me on Twitter at Commodork. Follow the show on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash you don't know flack. That's all one word. Or leave me voicemail on the You Don't Know Flack podcast hotline at area code 405 486 YDKF. You Don't Know Flack is available from iTunes, Stitcher Radio, the You Don't Know Flack RSS feed, and through throwbacknetwork.net, your home for quality retro podcasts. If you'd like to hear more podcasts from me, check out my Commodore 64 theme podcast, Sprite Castle, at spritecastle.com, and Throwback Reviews at throwbackreviews.com. Both of these shows are also available at throwbacknetwork.net. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on another episode of You Don't Know Flat.